this week on Alternative Fund Insight. Funds that are doing more prediction on a medium, short to medium to long term time scale. Um, I think this is a great environment for them. And the volatility in the markets is wonderful for them. I interview David Magerman, a computer scientist and veteran of quantitative hedge fund management with Jim Simon's Renaissance Technologies. We discuss his career, the outlook for such funds today, and his move into venture capital. I am Will Wainwright, and this is AFI, exploring trends in hedge funds and private markets. Thank you for tuning in to AFI. Before sharing the latest interview, a reminder to check out alternativefundinsight.com, sign up to the weekly email, and follow the LinkedIn page for the latest updates and interviews. David Megerman, you joined Renaissance Technologies in 1995 and helped found the Equities Trading Group. You spent about two decades at Jim Simon's firm widely seen as the most successful quantitative hedge fund in history across two spells until 2017. You are now managing partner and chief technology officer at Differential Ventures, a seed stage investing fund investing in the next generation of AI and data science startups. So how did your experience as a quantitative hedge fund manager equip you for your role at Differential? So the fact that they're both in the investing space really doesn't mean that one's going to inform the other. I think that the the domain that we're investing in is much more relevant than the fact that I'm investing. Um, you know, that we're investing in data science focused companies, uh, people deploying AI in the real world. And what I did at Renaissance for 20 years was operate a business in every different uh, capacity uh, that was deploying real world AI, um, deploying it in a very uh, um, risky fashion, um, exposing us to all of the risks involved with doing machine learning, doing data science, um, depending upon data, sometimes in ways where it's it's unsupported and um, learning from those mistakes, um, both the the, the scientific mistakes of misleading research and also the execution mistakes of of bad engineering. And I think that experience um, more more than anything else, informs the kinds of companies we like to invest in, and helps us diligence um, the real the real companies that are really deploying AI uh, from the charlatans. So, from a investing perspective, the world of quantitative hedge funds and venture capital is very different. The main virtue, from your perspective, you know, of, of your background in in this new setting, is using your skills, your very broad experience, to help founders as they develop their companies? First and foremost, to identify what companies are worth investing in. Hmm. You know, there's an enormous amount of money the last couple of years, really the last decade, but definitely concentrated in the last couple of years, have gone into uh, investing in early stage AI companies. And a lot of uh, the investors in those spaces don't really know a lot about AI. They don't know, they can't differentiate between a, a founder that's talking about AI from one that's actually doing it. And so the, the, the hands-on experience helps us identify the right investments to make, or at least gives us, a, I think, an edge uh, in the market on that. And then, yeah, it's true. When, when the companies go uh, um, start developing, 
I would hope that uh, if I'm investing in a data-focused, uh, technology-focused startup, that the technologists wouldn't need my help early on. Presumably, they know what they're doing better than I would. But um, I'll work with all the companies over the over the first couple of years, and um, the odds are that when they get to their later stages, um, my experience uh, growing companies and and deploying uh, uh, AI at scale um, and building architectures of systems, hopefully those that experience will help those companies technologically down the road. Uh, but initially, really, it's about um, really my, with my background and my partner's background, he was also a, a part of uh, companies that deployed AI, but more from the sales and marketing perspective and from business development side. So he's also got a really good eye for what makes a viable business um, and what, what uh, AI products are viable can really add value to a product versus just be there for show. Um, so the, the combination of our backgrounds are really helpful. Um, but in terms of the experience, there is an aspect of uh, the hedge fund management that comes into play, which is from a risk management perspective. Mm-hmm. And I've seen, I haven't seen a lot of discussions from venture funds I've been involved with as an LP and some we, we've interacted with. They don't really think a lot about portfolio construction from a um, diversification and risk management perspective the way a quantitative hedge fund does. Um, so I'm, I'm used to looking at a portfolio from a multi, multi-factor model with like 30 or 40 different factors, um, looking at, you know, uh, macro factors and, and, and uh, you know, industry factors and customer focus factors and trying to make sure that when you're adding, um, adding an investment to your portfolio, that you are cognizant of what aspects of that investment are amplifying your risk, increasing your risk and which ones are actually reducing your risk by diversifying you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There isn't enough investing in a, quanti- in, in a venture fund to actually do a statistical modeling, full-blown optimization. But you, you definitely, when, you're, when I'm looking at a company, I can at least think the way I would have at Renaissance about the different factors that, re- that the company represents in terms of its customers, in terms of its market, in terms of the kinds of um, labor uh, issues that come up because you know hiring is a huge problem in early stage technology. So if we're if we're investing in a company that's hiring from the exact same pool as a lot of other companies, that's a risk factor we have to take into account. And then just thinking again, not doing it from a purely mathematical point of view, but at least thinking about the the ways in which a, a new investment throws into our portfolio, how it will amplify or de-risk the overall portfolio. Yeah, that's interesting. So risk management, an area for development essentially in venture capital. Does it become a bit easier in later stage funding rounds when there's more data available? I mean, yes and no. It, it, because there are fewer opportunities at the later stage, they're really all you know bespoke um, opportunities. It isn't as though I'm looking at 12 different Series C opportunities and deciding from among them. And usually, um, when it gets to that stage, especially with the, the insider knowledge that we have as you know, usually board members or board observers, we have a good sense of whether this is something we should be piling into based on the, uh, the company's fundamentals, not so much from a, uh, a market perspective. Um, so I think that um, at scale, if we were a billion dollar fund, um, there would be much more quantitative analysis that we could do. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm hoping that like, you know, maybe in fund five or six, you know, we're at fund two right now, at fund five or six, we'll have both historical information, we'll have data from a decade of investing, and we'll hopefully have a lot more money to to invest, where then we'll be able to do something more quantitative. But right mm-hmm. now, 
we're really in a stage of collecting data um, and hopefully collecting enough data and, and analyzing it in a way where in the future we can use it. And also just using in, uh, intuition driven by data um, as opposed to actually doing quantitative trading. Can you give an example of a company you are invested in and that really exemplifies the kind of things you're interested in? Yeah, so um, a good example is, I'll give you two examples because they, they, they're they complementary. Um, one of them is a company called Agnostic, um, which is a quantum computing company. And their original um, go-to-market strategy was around protecting quantum computing programs in the cloud because all of quantum computing is done in the cloud. And there's a lot of um, machine learning applications that are being developed, um, data science. Um, we like to invest in infrastructure tools that support AI and data science, as opposed to, and we, we also invest in AI companies, but um, investing in the infrastructure, aside from the fact that as a developer, software developer myself, I know a lot about infrastructure tools and what's valuable and what's not valuable about them. But also it's the kind of thing where as long as the industry thrives, the individual winners, we don't have to bet on the individual winners. If we're building, a, investing in a, in a good infrastructure tool, then that will be valuable to a lot of different companies um, in the whole AI space and machine learning mm -hmm. space. So, so Agnostic was one of these companies where we felt that the, there's a, a big future in quantum computing and it's not present yet. There's still, it's still in the nascent stage, but um, because all of quantum computing is being done in the cloud, we recognize that people who were starting to, to put intellectual property in the, in the form of their, their programs that they were experimenting with in the cloud would need some security. Um, and Agnostic hired a great team they grew out their, um, uh, their portfolio of, of software to include libraries that would support research in different fields, be it pharmaceutical research, um, chemical engineering, or uh, um, uh, financial applications. And they realized that the big problem that companies were having when they were trying to deploy these solutions in their research environments was how to mix their existing high-performance computing workflows with quantum. Mm. So the tools that they had for doing their, their uh, research with their traditional computing resources didn't support or allow them to access quantum computing resources. So they built a high-performance computing orchestration tool called Covalent that is actually a really powerful tool for classical computing, for high-performance computing, but allows anyone who's using those environments to add in a quantum component to their research program and be able to mix those all those different uh, kinds of uh, computing resources together. Um, it's gotten great um, um, great response from potential customers, and they're they're going out now and and they they started with a um, open source uh, um, kind of free, freemium bottom up uh, go to market strategy, but now they're talking to um, big institutions about adopting it. Mm -hmm. But that's a company where it's got the machine learning uh, data science support component to it. It's dealing with a uh, cutting edge deep technology that. I feel like we do a good job at differential of, of diligencing, um, and it's got a really strong team. It's out of uh, um, out of Toronto. Um, a very strong technical uh, founder is a PhD uh, with a background in uh, in quantum computing, with a business school graduate. Um, that the, the two partners from uh, nearby schools in Toronto, and they came out with this business idea, and they've been we, we've kind of grown up with them. We've like uh, we're working with them for a couple of years. But they're a great founding team, and Nick's been working with them on the sales and marketing side. I've been working on the technology side, and it's been really – that's like a, a great example of the, the full dimension of how uh, differential operates. Yeah, so right in your sweet spot. Right, exactly. And there's another company that we invested in called Sciolo, 
which uh, we, we invest a fair bit in Israel. Um, Israel and Canada and Toronto are two uh, geographies that have a lot of strong technologists and are, I mean, Israel is no longer underfunded. It's got a lot of money there, but it's an area where there's a lot of opportunity to invest in advanced technologies from young founders that are, um, you know, energetic and ambitious and need money and guidance to uh, power what they're doing. So we found this um, uh, founder in Israel who was building a cybersecurity tool that was basically a replacement for VPN technology. Um, it was something that allowed um, a company to protect its resources from attack on a like kind of item by item basis. So we could like they could basically look at a their computing environment and pick which resources they would allow to be accessed ex- uh, remotely, and they would pick who they would permission to access them. And Sciola Solution is a cloud based security zero trust zero, zero trust security solution that allows um, the company to configure the environment to only expose um, to outside um, vendors and outside uh, uh, users the parts that they want to. Um, and this is an example of something that I wish that I'd had when I was at Renaissance because we had a very serious security problem, concerns about uh, people uh, trying to breach our security. And we created a very awkward solution that basically required everyone to have two computers on their desk in everywhere they were. So they had two computers at work, two computers at home. They had different access to different parts of the network and there was an air gap. It was a very complicated situation that was very awkward to use to achieve security. And Silo's product would have made that like seamless. So we love the company. We invested early. They were pre-products. Um, actually, right before COVID, I was in Israel meeting with the founder and we invested. And now they just raised their Series B um, and they're uh, high flying. They've got uh, great, great revenue traction and uh, they're doing as well, as better than we, we hope, but as we expect them to be really successful. Um, and that's, again, a, 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 from my experience at Renaissance, knowing what the pain points were for being in environments where people are protecting their intellectual property, knowing that this was a tool that would be valuable, and then recognizing the power uh, of the team and how, uh, you know, recognizing that they were the kinds of technologists with the kind of experience that could succeed in building this product. As a sideline um, on cybersecurity, you, you may have seen this week that, uh, the head of the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund said cybersecurity was a bigger risk from his perspective, even than volatile markets. So is it something that you see as just a seismic risk? Oh, yeah, for, for sure. That's the one area that we feel like is the safest, the most um, uh, recession-proof industry in technology because um, people have been under-aware um, in the last decade or so, how important cybersecurity is. And I mean, no one is unaware of it anymore, but people still don't value the solutions and feel obligated enough to have the best um, cutting edge cybersecurity solutions. And the more breaches that happen, the more people are going to be sensitized to the fact that they need to be spending more on not only um, tools and software, but also on human resources that understand um, cybersecurity to be able to pick pick the right tools to, to deploy and to manage them. And um, it's, you know, everything is moving, especially with COVID and with, with remote work and distributed companies. But even without that, um, when, it, when it comes down to like, you know, uh, the um, network connected cars um, and all of the, the things that we now have, everything we have is basically like a phone. It, you know, constantly connected to the internet, our refrigerators, our ovens, you know, our appliances, everything. And those are all risks. You know, you don't want someone turning your oven on uh, for remotely while you're while you're on vacation and having your house burned down. So, you know, people don't realize how much, you know, people who sell these internet connected products 
uh, vacuum cleaners and whatnot, they need to worry about cybersecurity also. And we've seen all these breaches with, uh, you know, these how security systems that are breached um, and, uh, you know, forget about credit cards and things like that being stolen. There's so much to worry about. And so I think that um, there need to be better solutions. Um, there needs to be better software. And there also needs to be better products that are going to be easier to use that people with less advanced cybersecurity teams and cybersecurity skills can deploy them because every company needs to deploy cybersecurity, no matter how tech savvy they are. So we're, we're definitely, we're, we, we've been, I, would, I wouldn't say over-investing, but we've definitely been investing a lot in cybersecurity and we've been looking hard for cybersecurity solutions that are um, hopefully going to meet that demand. Mm -hmm. A question on data. Can data solve everything? Has the marketing of AI at times got ahead of the results it can achieve? How do you think society can fully realize the promise of AI? Yeah, so I, I have been um, frequently quoted to say that um, AI has a history of being um, of, of overpromising and underdelivering all through the epoch. So going back to the 1960s, um, the marketing was ahead of the technology. And then there's been iterative cycles of as the, as the the technology has developed in very impressive ways, it always seems to get ahead of itself because the mimicking of intelligence is not intelligence. And even today with self-driving cars and with all of the automation that's going on, um, it's the computers don't think. Computers don't understand. They don't, they don't communicate in a human sense. They just have algorithms that have that, that implement behaviors which capture or, or try, try, to, try to mimic in some small way in pieces these different human behaviors. And when put together, they may start looking more like uh, human interaction, but they're always going to fall short of that because there's no uh, underlying intelligence behind them. It's all just algorithms. And so people who try to create intelligences that can think on their own, I think are always going to fail. Um, and like, so self-driving cars, I think are a fool's errand because, you know, like my, my father was a taxi driver back in the day. And it's there are a lot of people for whom sitting in a car driving it is a profession. And there's nothing wrong with that. So to, the thing that, to, to feel that we need to take that away and replace that with a, a sentient machine, well, I also think it's not possible. I don't see why it's necessary. You know, like even for like long haul trucking, having someone sitting in that driver's seat at least being the operator of the vehicle seems to me like a valuable thing to have, whether or not that person is actually driving the, 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 the truck the whole time. So I think there's a lot of value in creating, automating some of these functionalities to make it easier for a human operator. But I don't think it's necessary to replace a person. You can just replace the rote, repeatable tasks with algorithms that can do them more consistently, more predictably than a person, but still have a person overseeing them. So the solutions that are that involve and, and it does involve you know eliminating jobs to some degree because when you make something more efficient you're reducing the number of people that need to do it. But I think that there's a, you know we, we're always working working to make things more efficient. I think but the idea of, of eliminating jobs to me is unnecessary. I think that it, the, the the companies that are focused on building AI that will support human workers and make their jobs easier by taking the repeatable and rote tasks away from them and allowing them to do the more like kind of higher intelligence components of what they do. I think those are the companies that are going to be the most successful. Interesting. Okay. I want to turn to your background in hedge funds. You've been quoted saying hedge funds 
don't allow you to publish the results of what you do, which is really frustrating. Do you think that is a common complaint among computer scientists and others with your skill set? Um, not so, not so common. <clears throat> I mean, I think that people who go into people who go into um, hedge funds, most of them, or not most of them, but many of them, are interested in the game and the competition, and therefore the competitive advantage is not in not sharing and publishing what they've done. And there's also a lot of challenges. There's always more work to do, always more research. So, you know, you don't necessarily get put in that mindset. So you helped forge the equity trading strategy at Renaissance. What do you think the climate looks like now for Statarp? Um, I mean, I think there's a lot of opportunity because of retail trading. Um, you know, that, that uninformed, unsophisticated traders... Um, even ones that are informed by, let's say, Reddit or, you know, they have some, they, they do sometimes uh, studying uh, industries. Uh, there's a lot of nuance to how to trade um, that retail mm. traders don't know. And that's the kind of thing that quantitative trading software, whether it's high frequency trading software or just generalized, um, you know, hedge fund trading software is designed to take advantage of to execute trades, um, looking at the um, availability of liquidity in the market from a broad spectrum using computerized systems that uh, allow it to take advantage of short-term opportunities that these retail traders um, give them. So um, there's definitely like a fertile market for different levels of quantitative algorithms. Um, high frequency trading is one which, you know, I've never, I've never done high frequency trading myself, but um, it's something that, that can depend a lot on the structure of the market and can be geared towards like the, the microstructure of how markets trade. And those um, are well suited for the markets today. But if regulatory change came in, you know, when the markets moved from fractions to decimals back in the day, it really threw a curveball to a bunch of funds that were designed to take advantage of the inefficiencies of the markets traded in, in quarters and, and eighths and sixteenths. And when it went down to trading in pennies and micropennies, their entire strategy went away. So, you know, yeah. uh, funds yeah. that take advantage of the microstructure of the market can be um, damaged by changes to the structure if regulations change. But, um, you know, funds that are doing more prediction on a medium, short to medium to long-term time scale, um, I think this is a great environment for them. And the volatility in the markets is wonderful for them. Um, so, you know, when there was a long flat period, you know, kind of like the, the, the mid-2010s, when the market was kind of like creeping up casually, um, while it was good for investors, it wasn't particularly good for uh, quantitative hedge funds or hedge funds in general. Uh, but now these markets, I mean, you know, COVID was, I hate to say it, wonderful for quantitative trading. It's a horrible thing to think about, but it's just the reality. And certainly war um, in the Ukraine has created a lot of volatility that can create shocks that can, can you can either, you know, when a shock comes in for a quantitative system, it's kind of a coin flip. You're either on one side or the other of the shock, but you make a lot of money mm -hmm. off of the recovery from that shock. And it's the, uh, the, the way that the markets recover and get to a, a, a stable point from the big shock is usually very predictable by the quantitative strategies. So you might lose a lot of money on the shock. You might make a lot of money on the shock, but quantitative systems tend to make a lot of money on the reaction to that shock. So if you were starting a hedge fund today, no doubt it would be quantitative rather than discretionary. Uh, we've seen some very mixed returns among discretionary hedge funds this year. What do you think the future holds for the hedge fund industry? I mean, I wouldn't start a quantitative hedge fund because the biggest asset that a existing quantitative hedge fund has is data. 
historical data is the lifeblood, the uh, the fuel um, of of a, of a quantitative hedge fund. And I know that the funds that have existed for a long time will, for a long, long time, have a huge competitive advantage over me because of not only the historical data they've accumulated for testing and training and all that and different instruments they have data for, but their own trades are a valuable resource, which I would have none of because I, if, if I was just starting out. Um, so I would think it would be one of these areas that have a very high barrier to entry and the odds of me losing a lot of money while I learned would be very high, even though obviously I know a lot about quantitative trading. Um, now I'm not allowed to go into quantitative trading. Renaissance would sue me very rightfully. So I've agreed not to go into quantitative trading, but if I were to, if I were to be free to do it, I still wouldn't do it because I would know that the big players have such a huge advantage. I would rather find the next, you know, when I, when I got into quantitative trading, it wasn't a thing yet. Um, in fact, a lot of my friends, I was a computer scientist and a lot of my friends had joined dot coms and were paper millionaires, um, you know, working for dot coms. And I thought like, what an idiot I am. All my friends are making all this money doing, you know, the, the, doing uh, these internet companies. And I'm like working at this things no, one, no one's ever heard of called a quantitative hedge fund. Like, what am I doing? I've wasted my life. I mean, thank God it worked out, it worked out well. I think the best thing for me to do if I'm starting something is to find the next big thing and not try to like continue to leverage the last big thing that I know about. Um, and I think, again, quantum computing, there's photonics, there's different, um, different hardware solutions that are um, expanding the computing power. You know, the, the Moore's law is about to end and the need for increased computing resources is ever growing. So looking at, and I'm not a hardware guy per se, but you know, software is a great motivator for finding the right hardware um, to be the next big thing. And I think if I were gonna do anything new, it would be maybe putting together a fund to invest in hardware companies and software companies on, on the cutting edge, but which, I mean, differential is heading in that direction perhaps. But the, you know, the idea that I would be looking at using my computer science background to find the next great um, computing technology, as opposed to trying to take advantage of this last wave of profit making, which came from quantitative hedge funds. Yeah, interesting. So finally, can I assume you are very much enjoying your career in venture cap now after two decades in hedge? Um, definitely enjoying the uh, pace of it. Um, it's not as frenetic. You know, when I left Renaissance the first time, I um, I really had what I what I call P PTSD from the years in the in the figurative trenches of like every at every moment you get a phone call it could be like a major calamity um uh either in the world or at the, at the company and knowing that i can sleep <laughs> and, and not be woken up by any kind of urgent uh, uh urgent problem is really the mm -hmm. relief um but also i interact with so many interesting people all around the world now from um founders um venture investors uh, uh, the, the investors in our fund um, and the diversity of people that I interact with is so much more enriching. When I was in a black box hedge fund in a computer, you know, typing in a computer all day, interacting only with my coworkers, um, it was very limiting socially and kind of from a human perspective. And I find that like the, uh, the it's a big world out there. And even with COVID, I, I experience a lot more social interaction and intellectual, um, you know, stimulating intellectual conversations Okay, well, David, thank you so much for joining me on AFI today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. For more insight, please visit the Alternative Fund Insight website for my five takeaways from the interview with David. 
you may be interested to read my interview with Ewan Kirk, another quant hedge fund expert now working in venture on this side of the Atlantic. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend in the industry about it or leave a rating or review. And as always, thank you for joining me on Alternative Fund Insight. Back soon. <laughs>